Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. everybody and welcome to our two-part series. Uh, today is Wednesday, September 21st and we'll be having a second recording tomorrow, Thursday, September 22nd on different XPRIZE winners. In the past we focused on some of the XPRIZE winners and we're happy to have additional folks on the show. So today we have Peter Scheuermann, the Chief Technology Officer at Carbon Minerals joining us from beautiful Canada. Hello, Peter. Hi, how are you doing? Really good. Thanks for joining us. Thanks and, for having me. And as always, we have Naeem Merchant, who runs Carbon Curve, a consultancy that works with NGOs and startups on scaling up carbon removal solutions. He publishes the Carbon Curve newsletter and has a podcast about the carbon removal industry and the new carbon economy. And Naeem, it's so nice to see you on Zoom, but even better, it was to see you here in New York in person yesterday. Yeah, it was great to uh, finally meet in person, Radhika. Thanks so much for having me on. Always. And so for our listeners, Naeem and I are both in New York uh, at Climate Week and got to meet for the first time in person and had some funny interactions where people recognized our voices from this podcast, but actually had never met us and didn't know what we looked like. And finally, I'm Radhika Mugafkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at Nori. Um, so let's get started. As most everybody of this podcast knows, on April 22nd, XPRIZE announced the 15 winners of the second round of their competition for carbon removal solutions. Each of these teams have been awarded $1 million to help them compete for the grand prize of $50 million or three $30 million runner-up slots. That'll be awarded in three years. So. We don't know if the grand prize winner will be one of these 15 milestone awardees, but obviously these teams have done something that have impressed the XPRIZE judges. Um, and of these 15 teams, six are building DAC solutions, three are sequestering carbon dioxide from seawater, three are producing biochar and one is growing algae, and one is utilizing enhanced weathering and one which uh, encourages tree planting. So obviously the XPRIZE is looking at all sorts of technologies, which I think is great. Today, we'll be speaking with one of the winners uh, who's categorized as a rock solution, Carbon Minerals. Carbon's work with mine waste streams is based on pioneering research of Dr. Greg Dippel, and we'll be speaking, like I said, to Peter, their chief technology officer. So Peter, I guess let's just get started by you describing the technique that your company is working on and how you think it kind of advances carbon removal um, into the next stage. So right, so we're developing technologies that utilize mine tailings to capture and permanently store and mineralize um, carbon from the atmosphere. So a little bit of a primer, 
um, what is a mine tailing? It's basically waste from a mine. So if you're thinking about a nickel mine, for example, um, the nickel is the precious commodity, and but nickel can only, in many cases, only comprises about one weight percent of an ore body. So 99% of the rock that actually gets passed through a mine is waste, and that's what becomes the tailings. So they're ground up really fine, finely, like pulverized um, to, to like a sand size or even smaller. Um, and then they're deposited in these engineered facilities called tailing storage facilities, um, which you can see if you like Google on if you go on Google Earth and look up um, various mines. There are several square kilometers in many cases. Um, they're highly engineered systems, and the purpose is to store safely all of these tailings. And so there are certain tailings, um, specifically those that come from mines and ultramafic rocks. So rocks that are it's just a fancy word for um, rocks that are rich in magnesium. Um, those tailings can be reactive to CO2 either naturally or um, through our technology. And so those are the ones that we're going after. And so our vision here is that we'd like to take these TSF tailing storage facilities and turn them into extremely large air contactors. And so we're capturing directly from air and storing as a carbonate mineral in a single step. Um, so capture and storage, sorry, in a single step. But our process is actually a two-step process. Um, so the first is a mineral treatment or activation. Um, so this increases the reactivity of a rock to CO2, um, both the rate at which it captures CO2 from air and um, you know, the capacity to store carbon. So that's the kilogram of carbon per kilogram of tailing. And so following that uh, mineral treatment, we envision the tailings going out into the storage facility. That's our air contactor. And while they're out there, we're optimizing the surface of the tailings to maximize um, reaction with atmospheric CO2. And so we're doing that. We're measuring several um, physical and chemical parameters over the surface of the tailings. And then we're deploying autonomous rovers to actually churn and move the material so that the rate of capture remains elevated. Yeah, and so that, like I said, the end result is capture and storage in a single step. And our goal is to get to the scale where mines are actually net negative with respect to carbon. So mines are going to be a carbon sink at the same time that they're producing nickel and other uh, precious metals that are going into your electric vehicle batteries and other elements of the electric grid. I mean, so interesting and and. Uh, I have lots of questions about the process, but I think my first question really quickly is what inspired Dr. Dipple to even look into this as a research uh, area, or if you happen to know, like it's so timely, but I'm sure it's involved years and years of research. Yeah, so Greg's been at this um, better part of two decades. He's a geologist, um, geologist, geochemist, um, UBC, where Carbon Minerals is spun out of, has a long history with uh, collaboration, academic industry collaboration with the mining industry. There's something called MDRU, which is the Mineral Deposit Research Unit. Um, so Greg, Greg was going to mines all over the world, um, mostly focusing on the, uh, you know, the precious metal side of things. 
Then, in my understanding, is that he took a sabbatical um, at Los Alamos National Lab down in New Mexico. And there were some crazy folks down there um, looking at carbon mineralization. And so that got the wheels turning. Greg knew about these enormous um, tailing storage facilities and said, hey, what, what's going on out there? Are some of these with the right mineralogy actually capturing CO2 passively without anyone really paying attention? Um, and the answer was yes. And so from there, it's built and built. Um, and we are we spun out carbon minerals from the UBC lab officially um, kind of September of last year, so about a year ago. Well, it's phenomenal that you guys have won the X Prize or won a milestone prize <laughs> in such a short period of time. Uh, two more quick questions about the process. Uh, one, are these is this technology available at any type of mine or does it have to be a nickel mine uh, specifically? And two, once the carbon is created or, or drawn down, is it stored in the tailing or is there any other process that needs to happen to store it uh, for the long term? Sure. So it is um, mine dependent. Um, we're focusing on the mines with the highest reactivity um, kind of at Earth's surface conditions, and those, those are the ones, those are the ultramafic mines that I was talking about. Um, and so, yeah, ultramafic mines, it just means that there's got a lot of magnesium and magnesium oxide in the rock, and there are, those minerals often dissolve um, readily at room, like Earth's surface temperature and pressure. Um, so there are constraints on what the best mine looks like. And then some mines, like for example, we're not going to be going to do this at um, like a, a coal mine. I think, I mean, that maybe that uh, goes without saying, but the carbon's already in the coal. We need to put the carbon into the coal. Um, so there are definitely some constraints on uh, where we can operate or where it's best to operate, I should say. And then in terms of the second part of your question, um, we don't see the carbon moving once it's mineralized in the tailings. Um, so storage facilities are continuously refreshed, so new material is getting um, discharged uh, with whatever frequency the mine decides. Um, so it, the carbon will mineralize at the surface, uh, form a magnesium hydrate or magnesium carbonate that's permanent for indefinitely, and then it'll get buried and that's the storage mechanism. So you guys avoid a lot of the permitting issues that other like long-term uh, storage, carbon storage companies have. That's really, really interesting. And uh, I can't wait to see as this all develops. But um, Naeem, you know, you and I have been in some of these conversations uh, yesterday in particular about kind of the difficulty of growing a startup from the promising scientific piece to a some to something that is actually a viable business that can be supported and and you know um, draw down multiple multiple millions of tons of carbon as need as we need. So um, you know, kind of curious what your perspective is on what a company like Carbon Minerals needs to do to keep moving it forward. That's a great question, and Peter, also thank you for just so clearly walking us through your process. Uh, we're really excited to see how this all evolves. Um, 
you know, I think a couple of things come to mind and, uh, you know, Peter, I'd love your reaction to it as well, but it, it seems like the, the tools and processes that you're using to do measurement reporting and verification or MRV, um, those probably will need to scale with the solution. You know, an MRV solution that works in the lab may not be practical to deploy at larger scale. And so that, that kind of has come up as a potential um, bottleneck for scale for some carbon removal companies. Uh, so it's something that I think co companies that are trying to go from, you know, lab scale to early pilot to larger scale need to think about. And then, you know, I've had a chance to speak to uh, folks on the carbon minerals team in the past. And, you know, the model is really, really interesting. And it, it, it really involves partnerships with mining companies, obviously, in order to make this work. And so it, it, there's, you know, a lot of front end investment of time that are needed in, in establishing partnerships. Uh, with these mining companies and with carbon removal companies in general, right? There are stakeholders that are involved in uh, in your deployment and um, engaging those stakeholders early on is critically important just for any carbon removal company, but in particular in this case, because uh, it's so integrated with uh, within a mining, uh, mining company's operations. Um, and those partnerships enable a company like Carbon Mineral uh, to have the ability and leeway to learn and iterate as they build out their process in larger and larger demonstrations before their solution can actually become a, a more replicable model. So I think, you know, when we're kind of going from this lab scale and then to pilot, you know, stage then to larger scale, uh, the MRV tools and processes are important and need to scale with the solution. And that's, uh, I, as it sounds like in the conversations I've had, and I'd love to get into this with, with you more, Peter, is, is something that I think carbon, is, carbon Minerals is thinking deeply about. And then the, these front-end investments of, of time and energy with mining companies uh, in deploying the solutions are critically important to scaling up these kinds of solutions. Yeah, those are both really valid points. Um, on the MRV side, um, I get, I'll just start with a quick description of how we do it and then how we've scaled it so far. Um, so we use a tiered approach. Um, and by tiered, I mean we're measuring the rate of capture at various scales. So at the, And we use a range of geochemical techniques. So TIC, which is totally inorganic carbon, that's the, the smallest scale. Um, if you, and that's actually measuring the solid material itself. Um, and the change in carbon over time. So that's the smallest scale that involves um, going out and collecting grab samples from the material after it's carbonated for a uh, length of time. If you move kind of up a scale where you're employing, um, they're called um, chambers, they're called CO2 flux chambers. Um, they're well established in soil science and agronomy. Um, and so those will measure the rate of CO2 capture into the tailings um, over several square meters. Um, that's kind of their range for deployment. And then going even further, there's another technique from um, kind of the forestry agronomy world called eticovariance, and that'll measure the rate of capture and measure the flux of carbon into or out of the ground um, over the scale of um, thousands of square meters. And so what we've done over the last three years um, as part of the UBC lab is progressively larger field tests. Um, 
so I've done ones at kind of two square meters to six square meters, and then others in the lab have gone um, to the size of several tennis courts. And we've shown that using these MRV techniques that we can, um, that the various tiers I was talking about converge to a single answer in terms of uh, the total amount of carbon that's being captured. And so what we see long-term is that um, we'd have kind of a modular system that can move, um, MR, a mobile MRV system that's able to transit the surface of a tailings facility and um, dynamically um, read and, and tell us how much carbon's being captured. Um, on the partnership fronts, yes, um, definitely key to moving the scale is working with the mines. Um, we're in conversations right now with several of those mines, uh, mining companies. One is very promising, um, and if things keep going, we'll be on site um, kind of Q2 of 2023. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there is significant um, investment of time. Um, mining companies, there is there are liabilities related to tailings. Um, it's uh, which is and safety on tailings is a huge issue. So for us going out um, in these first kind of iterations, doing it safely is paramount. I mean, that's going to be key to getting this ball rolling and moving, um, you know, capturing more and more carbon at larger and larger scales. Um, so Peter, I'm curious, um, what is the motivation for the mining companies to work with y'all? Is it regulatory? Is it driven by consumer sentiment around this? Um, so, you know, when you're identifying key partnerships, how, how do you provide a value prop to these mining companies? Yeah. So the mining companies are getting pressure from a number of different places in order to decarbonize um, investors, you know, the Blackstones, the large institutional investors, governments, um, Canada, you need to be net zero by 2050. Um, and then also the automakers are making a big push. Um, Elon Musk has publicly announced, you know, the huge, what's his quote, like ginormous contracts to anyone who can produce nickel sustainably. Um, and so we, we kind of fit into that puzzle uh, broadly, whereas if we can help a mine, um, if we can remove carbon on a mine and show that this is possible at scale, that's really attractive to them in terms of um, how they display themselves to their investors and their downstream customers. Well, that, that seems positive to me that you don't have a needed government regulatory mandate to get interest from them because that's also something we've been talking about here in New York is this that the government hasn't been able to get its act together worldwide and so I'm happy to hear that companies are doing it for other reasons that the markets are more in control of because it does feel like the private markets are moving more quickly than government in this space. Um, so pivoting a little bit to the actual X prize, um, what will this million dollars that you won help you guys do over the next year or two? Yeah, so we're doing a number of things. Um, one is taking all those learnings from the field experiments and pilots I mentioned um, and kind of modularizer, making them modular 
such that we have a, a product, if you will, that can go out um, and increase the rate of capture over baseline and then also um, monitor that capture. Um, so that's a lot of kind of in the lab, in the field work. Um, and then the other thing it's helping us do is being able to, you know, talk to the uh, prospective mind and say, hey, we can come and work on your site. Um, we're ready to go. Um, we just need to, you know, figure out the details and, and you know, what do you need us to do because we're here ready to pull the trigger. Do you have to transport a lot of stuff to these mines? So is it easier if you're more local in British Columbia or is it something that's, you were talking about deliver, you know, creating a modular system. Do you have something that you can take anywhere in the world right now and you just have to test it? Yeah, so everything's packable in, um, you know, those shipping containers that you mm -hmm. see on large boats. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how we intend to move. And then we, once there, um, we'd like to stay there for as long as possible and minimize all those uh, transportation costs. Yeah. yeah, I guess that has to go into the LCA when you're figuring out your carbon, you know, overall carbon accounting on this stuff, which is difficult. Um, so Naeem, uh, pivoting a little bit to you, because uh, you just released a report this summer with Carbon Plan about the barriers to scaling this long-term CDR industry. And so when you think about, and you hear about a company like Carbon Minerals and this report, what, what, you know, what stokes your interest and what is your advice to them as they think about as they grow? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I think that, that, uh, that report, report with Carbon Plan, I think really helped um, just clarify a lot of the perspectives that are out there on what it takes to, you know, scale carbon removal. And, and I think, I think those perspectives are pretty varied. So I don't know that there's a kind of a clear answer, but some of the things that emerge that I think are probably relevant, um, you know, to this particular case is, you know, and we've already talked about this a little bit, but the importance of, of getting MRV right. Uh, I think, you know, that's, that's critically important longer term uh, for, uh, for companies like Carbon Minerals in order to continue to gain traction. And I think that that kind of links to another issue that was uh, an insight from the report as well. And that is the greater need for public sector support. And that's especially true for non-direct air capture carbon removal solutions. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of direct air capture, uh, but you know, we're seeing that a lot of the policies that are being advanced right now uh, are pretty focused on direct air capture. And that's because it's a bit more of a well-understood technology for policymakers and other experts in the field. Um, and so, you know, when you have the MRV working well for a particular carbon removal solution, uh, it can also make it kind of more attractive for getting more public sector support um, so, that, uh, so that it allows policymakers to shift away from a specific technology in, in, in terms of supporting carbon removal through tax incentives, for example, like 45Q in the States, or there's an investment tax credit, again, just for DAC in Canada. And, and so by having those kind of MRV standards and protocols in place that really kind of set some strong groundwork for measurability, additionality, and permanence, uh, which I think carbon minerals like kind of check a lot of those boxes or all of those boxes, but by getting that MRV in place and, 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 uh, and, and having something really robust there, it makes it more possible for government incentives like 45Q or even down the line, potentially government procurement 
to consider a lot more, a broader spectrum of carbon removal solutions that would qualify for these certificates. So Naeem, one of the an interesting conversations I was having yesterday was an entrepreneur describe, describing how MRV is becoming very, it's almost part of the tech stack of these companies and there's a lot of IP potential around it. So, which is not how it works in soil right now where we, we don't, you know, we collect data, we have a model, but the verification is done by a third party that's completely separate from Nori and from our farmers. And so I'm curious how you, if you have given any thought to this sort of privatization of MR, of the particularly the verification piece, which then I think makes it harder to explain to policymakers what you're doing. So, you know, have, what do you think about that? So when you say privatization of the verification piece, it kind of means like, you know, the project developer or technology developer owns the verification, essentially. They're verifying their own work. Yeah, I mean, you know. Exactly. You know, like yeah. they're verifying, but they're doing it themselves. So yeah. yeah, how does that work? And I guess they're developing technology that that makes it, I guess, a little bit more measurable and therefore, you know, easier to verify so on. You know, I, I, think, I, I think if that's where we're starting from right now, you know, I, I think that's 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 fine in the very near term. But ultimately, like we don't we don't want to have a system, no matter how good your technology is, where verification is happening by the actual project developer, technology developer. Like that's just not how verification should work. It should be done by a third party. I think that the challenge is that you're just not seeing the development of third party standards as it relates to methodologies and verification and all these other kind of components that relate to standards within CDR happening from any kind of third party or moving forward um, in a way that uh, carbon removal companies can kind of just sit around and wait for that to happen. And so, you know, if, if companies want to innovate internally, you know, and privatize this approach internally to start, you know, I think that's fine, but what would be I think much more preferable is then for very, very quickly, if this is gonna happen, is for these processes to abstract up into something that is a more kind of a third party arm's length approach that, you know, these, these technologies that are being developed and these approaches that are being developed, uh, that they can be, um, that, that these verification processes that, that stem from that can be owned by a third party because I think that's just, that's just how this needs to work. Yeah, it, it always makes me nervous if we start from the wrong place and try to pivot versus starting from the right place and doing it more slowly, though I appreciate the urgency and I and I also appreciate that these companies are developing very innovative technologies and things and, and need to protect to, rev, you know, create revenue streams around it. So not an easy question, but it's one that uh, definitely piqued my interest yesterday as we were talking to some of the entrepreneurs. And the, the fact that this, you know, these companies are developing the technology to, to improve MRV that like, I think, I think that's great if that's happening internally, but as you start to scale and grow, you know, you need to have third-party verification and, uh, and if your technology makes it easier to do that verification, then great, but it still needs to be handled by a third party. Yeah. And I think that's one of the attractions of DAC, right? Is it, I, I can see why policymakers grasp onto it because it's, pretty easy to measure and figure out. There's not a ton of complications. So it's like, I get DAC, I get how you measure it and I get how you verify it. Like you don't need a whole in super, super uh, literate, I guess, verification force in the way that you would for some of these nature-based and 
industrial solutions that uh, meet in uh, nature-based solutions kind of. So Peter, last question for you is, you know, uh, probably last question for you is what do you think you all need to achieve in the next three years to be an X prize grand prize winner or alternative, alternatively, what are your goals and dreams for the company in the next three years before the X prize is uh, awarded? I'll go back to something I said earlier. Um, it has to do with XPRIZE as much as just the um, rollout and scale up of tailings as a removal solution. And that is um, demonstrating that we can do this safely and at modest scale over the next you know, one to three years. Um, that's going to be huge um, in terms of the mining and in terms of getting partnerships with the mining industry and moving up the uh, how how much carbon we can sequester at an individual mine. Um, so I really see that as a focus for us. Um, it plays into our ability to, um, you know, shoot for that grand prize, X prize, um, but also just longer term for us, it's really important um, as a company. And Naeem, I'm going to throw one last question at you. If you were an X prize judge, what would you be thinking about when you were evaluating for the grand prize? What are things you think the industry needs to show uh, in the next three years to have really meaningful movement? Yeah, I'd be looking at a few things. One, um, I'd want to see you know, a, a pathway to driving down the cost of, of EV's carbon removal solutions. I think in three years, We'll still be talking about very high kind of premium prices for these these particular solutions, but it'd be great to see, um, you know, a pathway to getting that, that that price per ton down. The second thing I'd look for is just the ability to deploy quickly, and that's why those partnerships with you know mining companies in this case, but other stakeholders as it relates to carbon removal solutions more broadly. Uh, how do we how, how have you know these uh, technology developers figured out how to work with partners to deploy their technology so that it can be deployed quickly? I think that's another key area. And then finally, we've talked about this a lot, but you know, having a really robust MRV um, protocol and system um, at least contemplated and, and potentially in place. Uh, so, you know, MRV is 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 the product. That's what you deliver in 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 insofar as carbon removal is concerned. Uh, you know, um, Peter Reinhardt from Charm Industrial said to me recently. You know, you don't you don't show up at a loading dock with carbon removal, right? So making sure you get MRV right and that it's really robust and it's really well thought through, I think, is going to be critically important um, to to a, a company scale potential. And so I'd add that as kind of that third criteria I'd look for uh, as an express judge. All right. Well, with that, uh, thank you both for joining us today. And like I said at the beginning, tomorrow will be part two of our other talking to other X Prize winners. Peter, as um, I'm so happy you could join us today, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. Thanks so much for having me. And Naeem, it was good to see you over Zoom and good to see you in person. Thanks as always for joining. Thanks so much, Rodney, and thanks, Peter. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Carbon Removal Newsroom. This is our second segment this week with an XPRIZE Milestone award-winning team. Our regular host, Radhika, is not with us today, 
So I'll be filling in today as the guest host. Uh, this is Asa Kamer. I'm Carbon Removal Newsroom's producer. And we have a really exciting team joining us today. So let's get into it. We're going to be talking with um, representatives from two companies, uh, Mission Zero out of the UK and the carbon mineralization company 4401 based out of the UK and Oman. So their submission proposes to use DAC powered by renewables to capture, uh, to store captured CO2 in peridotite formations found in Oman's Al-Hajar Mountains. And we're gonna learn a lot more about that right now. So joining me is Nicholas Chadwick, the CEO for Mission Zero, and Karan Kimji, the commercial lieutenant at 4401. And I will start with you, Nicholas. So what I'm wondering is, you know, the cohort of existing DAC installations that we have deployed in the world is not particularly large and it's not particularly diverse in terms of technique. However, there's this a stack of well-funded con DAC concepts working towards deployment in the next few years that is um, much larger, larger than what we've seen and consists of some different methods than what we've seen. So can you tell us a little bit about Mission Zero, uh, your approach, and um, share what makes you excited about it? Yeah, thanks, Asa. Um, really pleased to be here. Um, you know, I, I think that that's a really good analysis is that, you know, there are a few deployments of DAC around the world, mostly aligned around a, a few companies, essentially. But you're right, over the next few years, there's going to be a lot of deployments going on of a range of different uh, DAC concepts, essentially, from a variety of different companies. I think what I'd say about our approach to Mission Zero is that um, particularly what's exciting about it is that uh, we've built it around this idea of scalability and modularity. Um, with a, a focus on being as energy efficient as possible. And so we have built the technology around a specific chemistry and house this chemistry within technologies that have already gone uh, undergone essentially like scale and experience curve work over the past couple of decades. So um, in the first step, we use um, essentially cooling tower infrastructure to provide the efficient solvation of CO2 into a solvent that we developed. You know, these things work day in, day out. Um, they are required uh, for power generation. So, you know, the lights wouldn't be on. We wouldn't be having this call right now if they didn't work in a reliable way and hadn't been uh, scaled and deployed a, a massive uh, a massive installations all around the world. And then the, uh, the way that we regenerate our CO2 is using uh, electrochemical water purification technology, which handles something like 20% of Barcelona's clean water every year. If you were to take the plants that have been built already and... Um, instead of uh, using them to process dirty water and use it for carbon dioxide regeneration with our solvent, there are actually plants which already represent megatons of CO2 regeneration capability. So again, this technology has been around for several decades. People at Project Finance built it and deployed it uh, at massive scale. So the joining of these two approaches together allows us to run our DAC technology using only electricity, um, and it's incredibly modular. So this means that we can almost uh, uh, copy and paste the technology to deploy it almost anywhere that we want. Um, so yeah, there you go. Excellent. That's that's a great answer. Thanks for thanks for getting into that. So I'm going to jump over to you, Karan. Um, why did 4401 decide to focus on mineralization of CO2 rather than more conventional underground storage of CO2? And why did you select this region in Oman? So mineralization uh, is the most permanent form of uh, the removal of carbon that exists on the planet today. Uh, compared to conventional oil and gas, uh, conventional storage of CO2, 
uh, storage really implies that the CO2 can be re-released again. In the case of mineralization, CO2 is eliminated permanently, literally immobilized in solid form, solid carbonate inert mineral form in the subsurface and therefore remains that way for millennia. So we really wanted to focus on mineralization because it is permanent and completely durable. Uh, and when we're looking at a, a challenge as large as and, and, and durable as climate change itself, this is really the kind of solutions that we need that can ensure that we are able to pass on a healthy planet to the future generations rather than burdening them with a potential uh, uh, shorter form of durability um, in the future. So we really wanted to, to focus on that type of permanence and build that into our DNA. In terms of Oman, we focus on Oman. Firstly, I am Omani. So I did grow up in, in the region myself and I'm very attached to the, the abundant and beautiful nature that the country hosts. We started to see a lot of impacts of climate change in the country itself, but then also realized that we sit on a particular rock, peridotite, which has the natural capability to mineralize CO2 from the atmosphere uh, uh, on, on a daily basis, but that reaction is very, very slow. Um, so what we effectively do at 4401 is we're able to speed up that reaction uh, using our process. In Oman in particular, the peridotite deposit is the, one of the largest peridotite deposits found on the surface of the planet, uh, which is why we wanted to start there. It enables us to scale up our technology and enables us to have the cheapest and easiest form of access to the resource that, re that we require for our process. Excellent, excellent. So to, to stay on that, because it sounds like your, your approach is to have the DAC and the storage located in the same general area. And it sounds like you're starting from scratch. You're not building around existing CO2 pipelines, um, which is interesting because obviously the transport, the potential transport of CO2 from a DAC plant to underground storage would theoretically be a, a big part of the cost of, you know, carbon removal via DAC. So I'm interested, you know, just to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, are there pros and cons to, um, you know, siting a DAC near the storage site? Does that create other challenges? Um, and, you know, I know that Climeworks, for instance, is in Iceland, you know, they have their much the publicized project there where they're doing their DAC right at the basalt formations where the storage takes place. So is there, is there similar thinking there? And, and is, does that present its own challenges? I mean, I mean, how does that, you know, work into the overall equation? At least with our uh, the way that we uh, have built our DAC technology and the way that it works specifically allows us to deploy it in ways that, um, and in places where it wouldn't be allowed, wouldn't be able to deploy uh, otherwise. And so for us, uh, having access to the right resources in the area, um, is a really important thing for us, but this is something that actually in Oman, particularly around this project and working with 4401 enables us to do. And I think, you know, this, this interesting aspect of transport and storage of CO2 um, with pipelines and this kind of thing, actually, if you can eliminate this, then you should, because uh, whilst it is nice to say, sure, you maybe other people have built the infrastructure already, there are costs associated with either utilizing it or actually having to build it yourself. So if you can take that out of the equation, then you will just make the whole system more efficient. Uh, no, I think Nick, you're you're right on the money here. Literally, uh, the amount of cost reduction from not including a transportation element is, is significantly beneficial for uh, for both parties, the direct air capture and the elimination of CO2 through mineralization. So to have uh, Mission Zero stack units on our sites uh, from a deployment perspective is also much easier to host and operate those units next to the injection site itself. So in or in, instead of having it in a different location, operating it elsewhere with a different team, transporting the CO2, and then 
having a separate operations team on the ground uh, for mineralization. So to combine all that in the same area is extremely beneficial for not just eliminating transportation costs, but in terms of the OPEX involved in operating the entire, uh, the entire project uh, for the you know, couple of decades long lifetime that we hope that this will, uh, that this will be operating. So would love to hear a little bit about what you all are working on now. And so, you know, I, what I would love to know is like, what are the challenges at, that you got, that you're finding currently? Um, what is this $1 million that you were awarded earlier this year going to help you accomplish the scale of your current operation, you know, and, and just the current challenges that you're finding yourselves working on? I'm, I'm really interested to hear more about that. Sure, I can start off here uh, this time. Uh, for, for On 4401's perspective, we're currently working, we're still working through our pilot injection tests. So we're creating certain parameters and uh, uh, doing injection tests using our fluid mixture injection technique to test certain elements and hypotheses with the mineralization process. So things like injection rates, mineralization rates, um, uh, injection quantities, uh, in, in, and, and the reaction of the subsurface to the injection of uh, fluid mixture. Um, so we're working through that and then basically scaling up our parameters towards a commercial scale, commercial scale uh, injection sink that should be coming online uh, middle of next year, uh, just in time to be able to host a Mission Zero's direct air capture unit. Wow. So is that a test site that's in the Al-Hajar Mountains? Is this in a lab? It is in the field in the Hajar Mountains. It is actually the exact site that will be hosting the, the direct air capture unit. Wow. Amazing. Cool. Nicholas, do you want to speak um, to the question? A bit? Yeah, sure. And I mean, I mean, from our side, like what we're really focusing on this moment in time is ensuring that um, our systems are integrated. Um, specifically, we're uh, demonstrating the right KPIs to ensure that we have the right level of confidence to make jumps and scaling required to go orders of magnitude from where we are now to the thousands of tons of removal that we need to achieve to be able to win the X prize. Um, I think for us, like, you know, echoing what, what Karam was saying about uh, 4401's own scaling journey is that, you know, we're going through the piloting process as well in 2023 with the intention that when we come to the beginning of 2024, we have ironed out all the kinks that we need to to ensure that we can deploy this on the ground in the way that we intend to in a kind of synergistic, holistic way, working together to ensure this kind of very efficient conduit of CO2 from the atmosphere and then permanently mineralizing it in the ground. Excellent. I want to get Karan a little bit into um, an, another detail of the carbon mineralization process, and that's the water, how that how that works. Because my very very layman's understanding is that the the captured CO two is mixed with water, and then that that mixture, when injected into rock formations, is what allows the CO two to be to mineralize. And so, can you tell us a little bit a little bit about the plan for where the where does the water come from in the Hajar Mountains? And I'll just skip to my second question as well, which is: Is there a possibility of, in addition, to using fresh water? possibly using seawater or other water sources? So the current pilot site that we're operating on uh, uses the natural groundwater aquifer that sits under the site itself. So it's literally uh, an existent uh, aquifer uh, in the subsurface, in the prototype formations. So we um, pump that water out, use it for, uh, for mixing with the CO2 and then perform our injection process. But we do recognize that there are limitations to that, especially in water scarce areas. Um, so we do plan to deploy our future sites at the coast and in Oman in the UAE, basically the Samael Ophiolite where we're working on in the, on the Hajar Mountains, there are uh, peritide deposits all along the coastline. 
Wow. So we do absolutely intend to build sites and then use seawater as a substitute for injection. Great. And so it sounds like you all are pretty confident that seawater will work for this technique. It is quite new, uh, a new process that we're looking into. So there has been some research done already uh, that shows that the fluid mixture is possible to create, but there will be some efficiency losses uh, because of the competing ions uh, from the naturally salted uh, saline water compared to uh, the CO2 that we would be mixing into that water. So with that, uh, with that we do expect around uh, 10 to 15% efficiency loss when it comes to the amount of CO2 that you can inject and dissolve into every unit of water. But on the other side, the flip side of that coin is that now we have an abundant source of water. So we, uh, we do believe that we can still make the economics work uh, regardless. Wonderful. And unfortunately, there will be a lot more seawater in the future from my understanding. So, okay, that, that's really interesting. And that, that's something I'd like to learn more about because, you know, if you don't have that, that limitation with the, the water and it can be done in other coastal areas, it seems like that would be very beneficial for your technique. And I, I can't help but be curious, and I, I'm sorry, I'm kind of, I'm getting into the weeds here, but one, one more question about the, the actual injection, if, if I can. Um, I recently saw a tweet from Jack Andreessen. I think I'm saying your name right, Jack. And he sent out some info about a site visit he was doing in Wyoming uh, with a, a carbon storage site, you know, an existing well. And the basically he sent out a picture of it and it's, you know, it's very small. It's, it's really not a, a, a large facility where the actual injection will happen. And I just thought that was interesting because, you know, it's some of the extrapolations that we hear about for, you know, getting to gigaton scale, for instance, there's going to need to be a lot of DAC facilities, a lot of storage facilities, but to see this, you know, rather small little gated area where the injection happens, it maybe takes away a little bit of the intimidation for how much physical space that would take up. So can you tell, what can you tell us about the, uh, you know, the, the physical footprint of, of a DAC and storage site in, in the Project Tajar vision? Sure, absolutely. So, uh, uh, Asa, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we do inject into the subsurface, so it's really not a surface area uh, uh, constraint for mineralization. It's a subsurface area constraint. So in the case of mineralization, when we inject the fluid mixture uh, into the subsurface, uh, peritide is a naturally fractured rock with basically a natural fractured network. And that fluid mixture flows through that fracture network and, uh, and mineralizes. But that fracture network spreads in a, uh, in a radius around that existing borehole. So you do not see from the surface the size of the coverage, the surface area coverage of the fluid mixture, but it indeed requires a significant amount of area in the subsurface itself, which is why when we deploy multiple boreholes across multiple sites, we do need to estimate uh, to have a certain amount of distance between each borehole so that we can cover the most amount of surface area uh, uh, in that fracture network underground. I think everyone's sort of aware of the, the kind of uh, mock-ups that, that are sort of floating around the internet of what DAC deployments look like, right? So there's a variety of them and they're all over, basically a lot of boxes with fans and this kind of thing. And I think it's always going to be the case almost that DAC deployments are going to be the larger uh, surface area or kind of volume constraint in these kind of these kind of projects, you know? as Karam was saying that you know the the injection well is probably like a fairly unassuming piece of infrastructure really that the real space it takes up is like under the ground beneath you um and so um from our perspective at least at the x prize scale what we're really thinking about its deployment should be a footprint of uh, several shipping containers um in this kind of modularized format of our technology um but if you are looking to get towards you know megatons or even gigatons of capability 
um, DAC is going to be the thing that takes up the, the most space for sure, I think. Great. Probably not in the subsurface, comparatively speaking, but, you know, the thing that people will see, it's always going to be DAC that takes up the most space. I see. And and speaking of that, you know, speaking of the the scale and the sort of extrapolating to what it, what it could get to, have you all done calculations for this site, for the for the Hajar Mountains and for the Project Hajar kind of um, scope for, for what kind of scale we're talking about? I mean, is there a, a size or a, a storage capacity that you guys are hoping to reach? So in general, across the entire Samael Ophiolite in Oman and the UAE, um, if we were to, we did some back of the envelope calculations and basically if you were to snap your fingers and convert every molecule of peridotite uh, into, into the inert carbonate minerals that we create through our process, we could theoretically mineralize trillions and trillions of tons, all the CO2 emissions ever emitted by humans since the pre-industrial age. The real question is how much of that can we actually access for our process? Um, but even if we're able to make a drop in the bucket there, that's still billions of tons a year. So we think we can make quite a lot of headway um, in this one rock formation that we're uh, looking at in, in Oman and the UAE. When it comes to the Hajar site itself, there is, massive, there is definitely large scope uh, for expansion of Hajar on that specific site. The real question is, um, is uh, water limitation, as we spoke about earlier. So we're still, during our pilot tests, going through the estimation of what that restriction would be. Uh, but it's, it is going to be an order of magnitude larger than what we are currently doing, what we will be doing for Hajar. Wow, some impressive numbers there. That's very cool to hear. I think like the, um, I think just to follow up on like a, another aspect is, you know, as um, as Karam was saying, if we can snap our fingers and mineralize all the industrial emissions that, or rather all the CO2 emissions that humanity has made since, since pre the industrial revolution, then, you know, this is going to be a fantastic opportunity that we'd be, we'd almost be remiss to not, to not explore and not try to, not try and achieve. Um, and I think the the one question for us is, as part of Project Hajar is that how do we create the conduit to enable that mineralization? And so what we're really trying to achieve here is the demonstration of, of thousands of tons of CO2 removal, if we can, as a minimum, essentially, as part of this project, because we judge essentially that if you can demonstrate that as a capability, then there's no reason you can't begin to access um, the infrastructure, the permitting, the planning, and everything else required to scale this up and the, the right capital stack, essentially. It is the kind of flag in the ground needed to show, like, this is a thing, and actually everyone should jump on board because this is a real solution that could really, really fight climate change. And, you know, you you all did win the, the, the Milestone Award, so some real experts in CDR seem to agree that there's potential. With your plan, I mean, between abundant capacity for renewables, the, the the specific rock formations uniquely, you know, across the globally speaking, unique in their ability to capture CO2. But, you know, it's, it's it seems like there's a lot going for this strategy. And so I've, I'm just curious, what is it that keeps you two up at night? What are the hurdles, the big hurdles, or are there any that, that you see between, you know, where we are now and getting to like, let's say gigaton scale um, for this kind of tech technique? In terms of reaching gigaton scale on the sites on in Oman, so with 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 every, every site is basically going to be different, slightly different uh, in terms of the peridotite layers that exist in the subsurface. So it's very site specific, uh, which means that we can't use the same assumptions that we've developed for, let's say, the Project Hajar site to extrapolate across the entire globe. Um, there will be a little bit of variation, so it doesn't keep me up at night, but it's definitely a a consideration as we look to scale. 
the thing that keeps me up at night, I would say, is, is access to a cheap cost of capital for project financing for taking the you know, direct air capture plus mineralization from its first commercial deployment to the multiple tens and hundreds of deployments we require to get to that gigaton scale value. At the moment, there is a little bit of gap in the financial markets where uh, you know, venture capital has a high cost of capital and is willing to fund early technology developments. And then you get your project financiers that are have a very low cost of capital that want an established technology that has been operating for an X amount of years um, with, with regurgitating data um, and, uh, and a, a long-term offtake agreement. So there's a little bit of a gap there. What we're, what, I, what really keeps me up at night is that who's going to fill that gap and help us get to those multi, multiple deployments on an annual basis. I, I think I would simply echo like many of the things uh, that Karen has just said. And it, I think, you know, from a DAC specific perspective, um, it, you know, this is a nascent technology in a way, which is, as we alluded to at the beginning of, uh, of our conversation, is, is still waiting for multiple deployments to occur in a kind of varied way. And really for the, the, the limits of the technology to be uh, ascertained, essentially. And so when it comes to things like permitting, planning, like how do you get insurance for these projects? How do you make this a bankable proposition? I think one of the main things that keeps me up at night is that in this kind of uh, modus operandi for this technology where you're focusing purely on removing CO2 from the atmosphere and, and mineralizing it and then commercializing it through the sale of carbon credits or, or offsets is that you know the voluntary carbon credit market itself at the moment is fairly nascent and there is an ongoing debate within society and industry about what are going to be the rules and and how people are going to interact within this market are governments going to step in or not and um, there's still a lot to be figured out um by everyone in this space and so that does keep me up at night a little bit i think one thing that however kind of assuages my fear is that um we have time that you know we're deploying this technology in 2024. I think governments are starting to catch up. You've seen the passage of the IRA in the US um, and you will inevitably find that other governments start to, to follow suit essentially. So I do think the rules and boundaries of this market will sort themselves out. And, and my hope is just that by the time we come to say, right, we've proven this and it works and now we need the right capital stack to get this in place, that the market is there, that the finances are there, that um, this isn't seen as such a, a risky proposition, but that's the point of this project is to prove that it's not such a risky proposition that actually you can have that assurance on the permanence of CO2 removal through this method. Can't say I envy you both on one hand at lab scale at, you know, pilot scale, figuring out very specific, you know, chemistry questions. And then on the other hand, having to worry about the fate of geopolitics and climate negotiations and the whole economy. So it's, Sounds challenging. Yeah. I think, I think like there's one more thing that keeps me up at night a little bit, and it's like quite a, a large thing. And I think it's that if you look at like the scaling of many technologies and, and what, what carbon dioxide removal in many ways is like a technology stack that requires a much larger, larger capital stack to enable it, is that if you look at things like solar cells or lithium ion batteries, like these had a long time to find their way in the market and scale and go down the cost and experience curve to get to the point where they're now ubiquitous and cheap and, and we're now going to be relying on them in many ways to deploy our own technology. Um, but DAC specifically has to get to megatons of removal by 2030 for us to ensure that we're hitting a 1.5 degree of warming pathway. And that is one thing that keeps me up at night is that, you know, once we prove this project works, like we need to scale like crazy. And I'm, I'm a firm believer that it's possible, 
but um, we need to ensure that the whole ecosystem comes behind us and what we're doing. And I think that's a large part of what we need to do is as part of our work in Project Hajar is to ensure that like, it's not just about us like squirreling ourselves away and, and, and doing this really cool project, but ensuring that like, we're cultivating this ecosystem of, of finance, of, of uh, government interaction, of, of people who really see the value, like from a from a social perspective on what we're doing. Like, this is ultimately almost a project for humanity in a way, right? And so we need to bring everyone with us as, as we do it. Um, what do you both think you all need to do a project to Jar to win the X Prize Grand Prize? Speaking of low cost of capital, that'd be one way to do it. But to win the X Prize and what hurdles or breakthroughs uh, do you feel that stand between you and, and the possibility of, of winning that prize? I think for us, it's achieving that first commercial scale deployment. Um, we're moving now from a pilot scale to a commercial scale, and we want to make sure that we have the right, um, uh, the, the right infrastructure to be able to host Mission Zero's direct air capture unit on our site and the right resources that we can provide them for the full operation um, of the removal that we require to win. Uh, the X Prize, and that that means for us uh, performing continuous injection in our first uh, commercial scale borehole and increasing injection rates to be able to host the 1,000 ton per year uh, removal that uh, Mission Zero's director capture unit will be providing us. Um, so looking forward to yeah, basically taking learnings from our our first commercial deployment and prepping it for for that Mission Zero direct air capture unit. I think the kind of uh, hurdle or breakthrough that, that we need that sort of gets that that we need to overcome essentially to ensure that we stand a really good chance of winning the X Prize is that um, it's always almost been the case that um, there's a lot of technologies and um, um, parts of the kind of value or technology chain that want to integrate with DAC and they're like, can you deploy this amount of DAC on this timeline? You go, no one can. And DAC always seems to be the kind of rate determining step in many ways. And you know, other nascent technologies as part of that technology chain have their own development timelines and they're very difficult as well. Um, and so I think the thing that um, is a unique challenge for Mission Zero is that um, the, I think we need to ensure that we have the confidence in, our, in the way that our technology scales as early on as possible to ensure that we can get from where we are right now to thousands of tons of capability. And you know, that is something that, um, I'm feeling uh, pretty confident on, but um, you know, it is it is a question that's that's being begged of us in a very short space of time. Can we scale the technology orders of magnitude and capability to ensure that um, when 4401 are ready to integrate the DAC technology or unit that we're going to be deploying, that we're ready to make the most of the capability that they've built? But I think if if the if if our two technologies and our companies can ensure that we communicate adequately adequately or you know they were working in synergy with each other to deploy this that you know there's a very real real possibility we can do this on the timeline that we envisage um, i'm feeling very confident wonderful well that is a great note to end on uh, i want to thank you both very much for joining us and we'd love to have you back on sometime thank you for the listeners for for listening in radical will be back with you next time and this has been carbon removal newsroom thanks for listening so much for listening to carbon removal newsroom if you like the show the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in apple podcast following the show on spotify and by sharing the show on social media tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal